Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. I was wondering if you have any impressive data science results to talk about this episode. Well, we always try to talk about the most impressive things that, that we can in any given week. But this week, I actually wanted to take a step back and talk about a couple of different conversations that are happening on the internet right now where people are actually kind of unimpressed with some of the papers that are coming out of deep learning groups and talk about why that is and if we think we agree. Okay, prepare to be unimpressed. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so why specifically deep learning groups, you said, that people are unimpressed with the, the results coming out of that? Is it is it something specific to deep learning that's causing this phenomenon in the community, or or is it something else? Yeah, yeah, maybe a more widespread thing. I, that is such a good question. So I think if you step back for a moment, you say like, okay, this is a criticism that people have of papers, and what is the point of a paper? What are you trying to do when you're some kind of researcher and you're writing up a result to share with the world? Well, from my perspective as a scientist, there's a few answers to this. Number one is you can be making a theoretical contribution. You can be saying, I don't know, like a theory, a physics theory paper might be a good example of this. Hey, we mm. just did some math and we're pretty sure that there's these particles called top quarks or something like that. I don't know. So is this like a, I guess running with that example, that's like heads up scientific community if you're doing any experiments in this area, you may want to look for this? Well, so yeah, so the theory is we think that this could work. An example an example out of deep learning might be something like backpropagation. But uh, then okay. there's a sec yeah, there's a second type of, of paper that's experimental results, like, hey, we went and implemented backpropagation and we think that it works in this way. And there's some theoretical basis behind the fact that we even tried to do that. A physics example mm. would be, hey, we went and looked for the top quark and then so we this found is like it we or did whatever. A thing. We actually went, we did a thing, and we found uh, some sort of positive results there. It's In particular, we did an experiment. Uh, you know, We were trying to figure out if the theory held water or not, so we found a way to test it, and here are the results of those tests. Oh, and okay. from that... Whether you know, positive or negative. Yeah, we've learned something about whether that theory um, holds. And then there's a third one, though, that you started to poke out a little bit, which is, I don't know that this is a, the domain of scientific papers as much as other types of technical writing and patents and things like that, but it's a more applied use. So we tried to accomplish this thing, we tried to build a system that could do these sorts of things and it was successful, and here's how we built it. It's a little bit more like a how-to manual. So you're not trying to test a theory. You're not proposing a theory. It's more so a demonstration of here's how you can get a result out. But it gives you the information that you need if you're a practitioner to reproduce that system in your own setup or to solve some of the problems that are particularly tricky about solving that problem, that kind of thing. Mm, okay, so so the three things you just said kind of boiled down are, hey, this thing might be possible. So we write a paper about how it might be possible. Hey, we did some, we did a thing and, and tested whether or not this thing is possible, and these are the results we got. 
or hey, we did a thing and we got positive results and here's how you can reproduce the experiment. Yeah, I think that's roughly fair. And so starting with those as the foundations of you know, most scientific communication, why is deep learning getting a particular bum rap here? Well, number one, because anytime you put deep learning in the title of a blog post or a paper, you'll get more clicks on it. Oh, so it's a buzzword. I don't know. A little bit. A little bit. I think this is actually a problem that's maybe common across more than just deep learning. There's data scientists and you know more vanilla machine learning papers that suffer from this as well. But I think deep learning is particularly prone to it. Uh, and the thing about deep learning is that it exists in this weird space that doesn't fall into any of those three categories very cleanly. Because in general, there's not a super strict theory of deep learning. It's a thing that works surprisingly well. And what that, the subtext of that is that scientists don't necessarily understand why always. There isn't a lot of theory that underpins deep learning in the same way that there's theory that underpins physics. Experiment, again, experiment is kind of coupled with theory. And so with a few exceptions, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be running experiments on deep learning frameworks. So you might think that it falls into this third category, like, hey, we built a deep neural net to try to solve this problem. We solved it. Here's how you can too. Or maybe in certain cases, we didn't solve it. And you should know that and not go down the blind alleys. But there are some problems with this third approach as well. Uh, Number one is that very often deep learning papers aren't solving real problems that people really care about. They're using things like academic data sets that don't actually capture like real problems that anybody has to solve, or they're solving them under unrealistic conditions. Like, hey, we developed a new algorithm and it's got some weird little tweak to it that's not particularly well-motivated, or it's a little bit well-motivated, but not very well-motivated. And then we spent a thousand dollars of training time, you know, a a hundred GPUs to train this thing. And it improves on the current benchmark by half of a percent or something like that, something that's not statistically significant. And so if you're a researcher, you're kind of left sitting there like, okay, so what did we just learn? And there isn't a clear answer to that question. Mm. So actually, maybe this is a dumb question, but if somebody wants to spend some time or effort or or money in writing a paper and releasing it, even if the paper is just for funsies and doesn't really apply to anything or maybe uh, showed no meaningful result that anyone could generalize, like what is the harm of having more papers that don't say particularly uh, uh, important things? Yeah, and I think that's actually a really good counter-argument to some of these complaints. So in uh, at LinearDigressions.com, we'll link to a blog post that has uh, does a dissection of one of these papers in particular. And the reason in general, like, I don't know, this has been something that every once in a while I've been thinking about for a while, but we haven't really talked about it on the podcast. We don't really talk about things that people do that aren't that impressive because I don't know in general (laughs) I feel like you know if you want to do some work and put it out there then I don't want to 
just sit here on my couch and snipe at how I think it's stupid. Like that's not constructive. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit, uh, by default in favor of people trying stuff and then wrote up, writing up what they tried and then putting that out there again, even if you find something that isn't that impressive, then keeping other people from going down that same path is a perfectly valid reason to communicate stuff. So I think that's a really good question. I think to devil's advocate, my devil's advocate, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, having lots and lots of, there's limited uh, time and attention in the world Mm. to pay attention to these things. And so if there's a whole bunch of, you know, not very inspiring papers out there that are taking up people's resources to read, then that's not great overall because it detracts attention from the other ones. Yeah, it kind of, I guess it kind of messes with your signal to noise ratio. Uh, You've got a lot more to read and maybe a lot more, a lot less of it is nice, high quality signal that you can learn important things from. Yeah. So I don't personally have a huge problem necessarily with sometimes reading papers that I don't think are great. I try to curate them a little bit and I don't necessarily always talk about them on the podcast because the whole point of the podcast is to talk about stuff that's interesting and impressive. But I do think that if you're a person who spends lots and lots of time reading deep learning papers or whatever else, that that's something that you might be encountering and it seemed worth talking about. Okay. So earlier you were talking about kind of those three, I guess, uh, types. And the third one was, hey, we did a thing and here's how you can do it too. Uh, And uh, maybe in particular with deep learning where the data set is really important to um, getting the results that you get. I guess that's kind of the case for everything. But what happens in cases where uh, whatever group or person or organization who put out this, uh, this algorithm in this paper, what if they can't share the data that goes along with it? I'm thinking medical research. I'm thinking proprietary research. Is that a concern? I imagine it must be. And are there ways around that or ways that that's handled? Yeah, that's super tough. I'm remembering an episode we did not too long ago. It was the one about software 2.0. And one of the one of the ideas there is that the data is part of the code in exactly the same way that the Python or the R or the, the bash is part of the code. And so, yeah, the idea that you would release a result, but you couldn't release the underlying data means that it becomes impossible to replicate the result, which means that if you think of the result as something that ideally is verifiable, then you you can't do that if you don't have the data set. Mm-hmm. But you make a great point that, yeah, the flip side of if you don't want to be using stuff like silly academic data sets that nobody really cares about, you want to use really interesting data sets that people do care about, then the flip side of that is that, yeah, then there's ideally the expectation that the data set would be released. But in practice, that's often not happening either. And it's leading to some some real problems where there's papers that come out that maybe describe the algorithm in a bit of detail, but they don't release source code. They don't release the data sets. And so it's really hard to know if 
the results are true or not. You kind of have to take it at face value that what the researchers say is the truth. That's interesting. Said so that that it's correct. I shouldn't say the truth because yeah. like that makes it loaded in a way I don't mean to. But that is correct. That almost feels so. Like if you're sitting, uh, like let's imagine Google uh, is the example here, and they they want to they write a blog post or they release a paper about uh, an algorithm that they obviously cannot uh, release the data that they are operating on because it's proprietary or it's uh, or it's private. In that situation, if you're sitting inside of Google, you can say, hey, this this is the best thing that's happened to this industry, this algorithm that we've created or something like that. Um, but if you're sitting outside of the walls of Google, it might even be a low quality, uh, like a low quality result or something that you can't necessarily even learn from in kind of the, the craziest example. I don't think that would ever happen because I think that a company like Google would uh, only release things that they could, you know, provide value to the reader. But I guess the point I'm making is that it very much depends on where you're sitting, whether what you're reading is high quality or um, kind of a, a, you know, to say it cruelly, a waste of time. Well, it's funny because one of the threads that, or one of the sources that I was reading that made me think I wanted to talk about this a little bit was actually a thread on Reddit where people were complaining about Google not releasing data sets or trained models that were associated with some results that they were claiming. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a real thing that really comes up. One thing also that at least I've learned by doing this podcast with you is that data anonymization is really, really hard. And yep. so you can't, I, I mean, there are just some situations where there's no path forward, you know, that's that's safe in protecting the user data or protecting the proprietary information that you have. Yeah, so it's kind of a double bind. I don't know. In some ways, I think it's yeah. you know more egregious to not release all the pieces of a paper than it is to release a paper that's not that impressive. But yeah, you raise a really good point that sometimes there is no way to release that stuff safely. I don't know. There's maybe still some middle ground where accredited researchers could get a hold of the data for reproduction in like academic environments or something like that. Mm. But yeah, you're right. It's not super clean. I guess that it's just occurring to me that there are probably an, a lot of cases where organizations decide not to go through the effort of releasing results that otherwise they would because of these various incentives that kind of stand in their way. I could be. I mean, it's hard to know because, yeah. you know, it's like... We it's hard to actually know. but By definition, yeah, don't know about them. But, yeah, that seems conceivable to me that you're standing there and you're looking at the options between going through all the hassle of dealing with this stuff and not releasing the result. Yeah, I could imagine not wanting to release the result, which is also not a great outcome for science. So I guess as a professional in this field, knowing that there's low-quality papers out there knowing that there are papers that even though they may they they may be high quality ideas or high quality algorithms they end up being effectively low quality once they get to uh the the public how do you as a professional interact with these kinds of things well i would say that on average i read or start to read probably 3 to 4 blog posts or papers for every one that I even consider talking about 
on the podcast, maybe the ratio is even higher. So I do a lot of just quickly scanning things and spend a lot of time trying to find the good ones and then spending more time on those. And then from that process, you start to learn which sources have particularly consistently high quality papers. You start to follow the the citation trees that the good sources tend to link to other good sources, that kind of thing. So it is it is a place where you start to get to know your way around, but there's no easy solution that I've come up with. You do have to you have to kiss a few frogs before you find princes. But hopefully the outcome of all of that work that we do is that most of the stuff that makes it into the podcast is pretty good. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you consider linear digressions one of the better sources of content that <laughs> that you use. I hope it is useful to you in that respect. If it if is, not, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, you just stop at the if not. Uh, I'm sure it is, and you can always leave us a five-star review at iTunes. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so with that, I think that's a great place to end it. We'll <laughs> catch you again next week. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.